In 2014, cost-saving measures in Flint, Michigan, caused the lead concentration in the city's water to rise. Research suggests that months of lead exposure have resulted in an increase in the number of local children with elevated blood lead levels. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Bellinger, a professor of neurology and psychology at Harvard Medical School and a professor of environmental health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Bellinger has written a perspective article about the causes of lead contamination in Flint. Dr. Bellinger, if it's been known for millennia that lead exposure is dangerous, why has it continued to be an issue? Why lead pipes? Why was it added to gasoline, paint in the first place? Well, in addition to being toxic, lead is a very useful metal. It's very soft and malleable. It can be alloyed with other metals. And so it has a number of uses. It was added to gasoline because it prevented knocking in the engine, in higher-performance engines, and so it enabled the development of larger engines and larger cars back in the 1920s. And it was added to paint because it actually improves the performance of paint. It gives it a nice color, depending upon the form of lead, and the paint wears better when it's in contact with the elements. So humans have had this love-hate relationship with lead for a very long time, using it very widely, but occasionally when things go awry, causing some real health problems with people who are exposed. Things went awry in Flint, and you, you trace that back to decisions made in 2014 about the source of the city's water and the water treatment measures that were taken. Were those decisions the result of officials deliberately ignoring federal rules and the potential harm of exposure, or were they made because of oversight and poor communication? Well, I don't think it's known, and I'm sure there'll be inquiries to figure out who knew what when and how certain decisions were made. But there were, like many accident investigations show, that there wasn't a single cause, but it was really the result of a sequence of poor decisions. And I think that's what happened here. Flint is very economically downtrodden, so the governor had appointed a special manager to take over the finances, and this manager thought that some money could be saved if drinking water were taken from the Flint River rather than from Lake Huron, and that would, in fact, have saved some money. But for some reason, which I've not been able to learn, the anti-corrosion measures that are supposed to be taken and mandated by the lead and copper rule from the EPA, those measures were stopped when Flint began drawing water from the Flint River. And so that increased the corrosivity of the water. And then there were some other problems that arose when they made the switch over to the Flint River, and they had to add some other chemicals to reduce the disinfection byproducts. And that further increased the corrosivity of the water. And when water is more corrosive, it tends to dissolve metals from whatever it comes in contact with. And so that seems to be what happened in Flint, that there are still some lead piping in place, mostly in the lead service lines connecting homes to the municipal water system. And so over time, the corrosive water just wore away the mineral scale that usually forms within pipes and keeps water from actually contacting the pipe itself. And so over time, more and more lead leached out and got into the water that people were using for drinking and cooking and making up infant formula and so on. And unfortunately, this seemed to go on for quite a number of months before the citizenry, who were very concerned about the water, not because they knew it had elevated concentrations of lead, but because it was discolored and it smelled funny and tasted bad, but they couldn't seem to attract the attention of the local or regional authorities to look into this. And it took some citizenry who independently contacted an analytical chemist, a water specialist from Virginia Tech, Mark Edwards, 
who came out to Flint and started doing some testing and identified elevated lead concentrations as a real problem. Looking at the future, have other communities experienced this sort of thing where many people are exposed to lead contamination? Do we know what the long-term effects might be in Flint? Well, yes. About 10 years ago, there was a very similar episode in Washington, D.C., where there were elevated concentrations of lead in the water. And again, it was because some of the water treatment protocols had been changed. They switched from free chlorine to chloramine as a disinfectant, and that changed the chemistry of the water such that more lead was leached out of the water infrastructure. I mean, the problem is that we've got a tremendous amount of lead still in our environment. About 20 million homes still have leaded paint in place. Sometimes it's many layers deep. But over time, the surface layers of non-leaded paint deteriorate, and so that leaded paint may become accessible. We still have a lot of lead in our urban soils because we added lead to gasoline for 60 years. It was only in the 1990s that it was finally taken out completely. And so there was a lot of airborne deposition. And in some urban areas, the concentration of lead in the soil is enough to qualify as hazardous waste. And there's about 10 million homes still have some lead in their plumbing system. As I mentioned, probably it's connecting the home to the municipal water system. So until we actually deal with this problem once and for all and get rid of all these existing legacy sources of lead, Unfortunately, we're likely to have repeat episodes such as we've seen in Flint. How massive would that intervention have to be to eliminate the problem entirely? Well, it would cost a lot of money. To de-lead homes one at a time is quite expensive. But we really have to take the long view that if a home is de-leaded, it protects not only the people, especially children, living in the home now, but any future inhabitants of that home. And the same with replacing lead service lines. We don't know exactly how much it's going to cost in Flint to do that. Estimates range from the hundreds of millions. I've even heard up to $1.5 billion. But again, it's going to deal with the problem once and for all, and we won't have to worry about people getting exposed, at least via that pathway. So it's not cheap. It's not technologically sophisticated. doesn't require a lot of fancy equipment, and so it's hard to get the attention of those in power because it's a decision to address the problem now is going to cost a lot of money and the long-term payoff is well into the future. And unfortunately, a lot of these decisions get made more on a short-term rather than a long-term basis. For children who've already been exposed to high levels of lead, are there ways to mitigate the effects of, of the exposure? Well, medically, the options are quite limited. If a child's blood lead exceeds 45 micrograms per deciliter in whole blood, then chelation, the administration of drugs that can bind to the lead and promote its excretion through the urine, is an option. Although we know from a recent randomized trial published in the New England Journal in 2001 that this treatment, while it does help to rid the body of lead, it doesn't reverse cognitive damage. We don't know what measures might be helpful in mitigating the effects on children. From other sorts of brain insults, we know that providing enrichment opportunities, extra experiences that stimulate children may be beneficial. We know from animal experimental animal studies that those can blunt the effects on learning and memory in the rats. And we hope that the same thing would be true in humans, but we really don't have very good evidence of that at the moment. And so it's very common in the literature to see that the effects of lead are irreversible. And I think that's a little bit too pessimistic. I'm not sure that the studies have been done that that would allow us to do that. But 
it's certainly true that it's far better to prevent exposure in the first place through primary prevention than to try to identify therapies that would be useful as secondary prevention measures. It's much better to keep people from being exposed in the first place. So finally, and in that regard, you write in your article that disadvantaged children are exposed to more lead in their everyday lives than their wealthier counterparts, even in the absence of water contamination. So what can be done to reduce that disparity? Well, poor children tend to live in housing that is more likely to have leaded paint and perhaps to be deteriorating. And so children daily come into contact with those potentially high-dose sources. They tend to live in, in urban areas where there are more point sources of contamination. That's where industries tend to get cited. And so these children are really at a disadvantage in several respects. They are exposed to more lead because of where they live and and so on. And there is building evidence that suggests that children who are less advantaged, perhaps because their schools are not as as, as high quality or they have nutritional deficiencies, may suffer greater harm from a given exposure to lead. That is, the same level of exposure will be more harmful to a disadvantaged child than, than a more advantaged child. And finally, it looks as though having been exposed to too much lead as a child sets the child up to be able to respond with less resiliency and compensation to future challenges to brain health. And so the poor children are, I say, at triple jeopardy. They're more likely to get highly exposed. They have a greater adverse response to the exposure, and the exposure places them at a disadvantage in terms of their ability to respond to future challenges. So We really need to focus our primary prevention efforts in these areas where these children are at such increased risk. And people have suggested that we might be able to solve many problems at once if we commit to training unemployed people in in the inner city to conduct deletting operations safely. We'll protect the children and provide those unemployed individuals with good work. And we'll essentially, as I mentioned, protect all future people who live in those deleted homes from having to worry about exposing themselves and particularly their children to this poison. Thank you, Dr. Ballinger.